Welcome to yet another science podcast, a podcast devoted to conversations with scholars containing philosophical, historical, motivational, conceptual, and technical questions relating to their research. In this episode, we interview Clark Barrett, a professor of computer science at Stanford University. Before Stanford, he was an associate professor of computer science at the Current Institute at New York University. He introduced the novel automated reasoning technique, now known as Satisfiability Modulo Theories, SMT. His expertise is in automated reasoning and its applications. He was an early pioneer in formal hardware verification, where he helped build one of the first industrially successful verification tools for hardware. He has also pioneered techniques for applying formal methods to neural networks. His current work focuses on the development and application of automated reasoning techniques to improve reliability and security of software, hardware, and machine learning systems. He is the director of the Stanford Center for Automated Reasoning and co-director of the Stanford Center for AI Safety. He is an ACM Distinguished Scientist and a winner of the 2021 Computer Aided Verification Award. Enjoy. So you work in many areas. You work in computer science, artificial intelligence, automated reasoning, verification, but you're also surprisingly very focused on a particular problem, the SMT problem and building tools for it. Now, when I was an undergrad, one of my favorite tools uh, was actually Wolfram Alpha. Mm -hmm. And it seemed like this sort of black box tool that could solve just about any engineering problem that would come up in undergrad. <laughs> now, in grad school, I found the SMT problem, and at first glance, it did seem a lot like Wolfram Alpha, uh -huh. but you know, maybe a little bit on steroids. It has a much more power to it. Mm -hmm. It feels like this ultimate like black box problem solver, very loosely. Yeah. Uh, you essentially, just give it a problem, and the tool finds a solution for the problem. It's hard to get right. much more black box than this. Right. We'll, we'll go more into the problem itself later. It's extremely intricate, but it's such a foundational problem to computer science, mathematics, AI, and, and there's so much philosophical depth to it. Now, my question is, uh, when you look under the hood of how these tools work, they're doing these very intricate things. Hmm. But if you really study it, a lot of it looks like things we did in primary school. There's some algebra, there's little symbol manipulations, there's some reasoning, some yep. deduction, and it, this is all in the computation. Mm -hmm. So what are the relationships between these things? And, and why can so such a powerful idea emerge from this? Wow. If you don't mind, maybe I'll start with just, uh, you mentioned a bunch of things, so I, I'm going to comment on a few of them and get back to your question, if that's all right. Great. No worries. Um, so I think the problem itself is fascinating and I would couch it as sort of the problem of automated reasoning, right? Of can you pose a problem to a computer and it just solves it for you, right? And I think this goes way, way back. You know, great minds have dreamed of this, uh, you know, go all the way back to Leibniz. Uh, Leibniz had this idea that someday, you know, you would never have to have an argument because you would just uh, have some kind of device and both of the philosophers would put their axioms or their thoughts into the device, and then they would just calculate the answer, you know, and that th that would be it. And of course, Hilbert's and Scheidung's problem was really at the heart of this as well. You know, can we have one algorithm that will just answer any question in mathematics and tell us whether whether it's a theorem or not? And then, of course, you know, Turing and uh, Gödel crashed the party, saying, "No, you can't." Uh, because it's undecidable. But then slowly, slowly people said, well, okay, maybe we can't do everything, but there are a lot of things we can do. And that's sort of the, the track we've been on. And now 
uh, I think what's so intriguing about these tools is they really can do the sort of thing that these uh, philosophers dreamed about. You can give them these very general problems and, and they can find solutions. Now, to get back to your question, um, what is the relationship between all these pieces? There, there's a lot going on there, but I, I, th I think that fundamentally it's, you know, fast computers that met uh, really pragmatic algorithms, right? And then having a sort of framework for plugging it all together that brings in, you know, great work from logicians and mathematicians and systems engineers and putting it all together uh, is really what's made it possible, you know, to solve these problems. So it, it's not like, I mean, there were a few major breakthroughs. Like I would say one big breakthrough was around 2000 with what some people call the satisfiability revolution, where the Boolean satisfiability problem, which is you could think of as maybe the most fundamental problem in automated reasoning, it went from a theoretical curiosity to an industrial workhorse, you know, in a matter of a few years. Um, and again, that was a breakthrough. The sort of big breakthrough came in Sherad Malik's group at Princeton. He's an electrical engineering professor, and he had a couple of undergraduates that he wanted to see if they could build a SAT solver in hardware. Um, so the best so SAT solver at the time was this tool called Grasp. It was written in C++. It, you know, used all kinds of object orientation and indirect pointers and all this stuff. And so the first thing they did is said, oh, well, we can't use this. We're going to have to rewrite it in C and, you know, make it, make it do things that would be better for hardware. So, you know, they pulled all the memory and they simplified a bunch of the stuff. Uh, a bunch of the heuristics and they profiled it and optimized it. And at the end of the day, their solver was thousands of times faster than Grasp. And they <laughs> never got around to building the hardware because they had this incredible breakthrough. And uh, that was sort of the beginning of a whole bunch of really interesting research on the SAT problem where, where people realize, you know, this may be an NP complete problem, but we can actually solve it in practice in a lot of cases. And I think that sort of pragmatic approach has driven uh, SAT and SMT and a lot of the other things that we're seeing in automated reasoning now. It's, it's really interesting when you watch the solver work, it, it almost seems mechanical, right? It's, it's just executing these you know, seemingly simple rules at, at sometimes first glance, uh, maybe not always very simple, but for, like resolution comes to mind. Is it surprising to you that we can do so much deduction from such a mechanical process? Sometimes I do get surprised, yes. Uh, I'll give you another great example. One of the students in my lab uh, posed this puzzle for us. Um, the puzzle was, you know, can you find a function f such that if you apply it twice, uh, uh, from reals to reals, okay, it's a function from reals to reals, such that okay. f of f of x is equal to x squared minus 1, okay? And, you know, I thought about this problem for a long time. I was trying to think of how to construct it then I was like okay this is hard I'm not going to think about it and it came up then it came up again during one of our meetings and we realized we could just ask the SMT solver this question you know <laughs> see if it can find a solution and so sure enough it actually proved that there's no such function wow. and wow. and you know uh, CVC5 actually how long? Can, how long did it take to prove it uh, for like a few seconds yeah it's very fast and we dumped the proof and of course, the proof was to like pages and pages. We couldn't parse it. 
But no. um, I later figured out, you know, a simple proof for it. And, you know, it, on my to-do list is to go through the proof and see if CBC5's proof is the same as mine. But that was very surprising. You know, that was like this amazing, it was like this amazing end of quarter lab meeting where everyone was just on the edge of their seat to see what the solver would do. And then it like solved this puzzle that had been, you know, bugging us all quarter long. So that was really cool. And that was very surprising. But then knowing that it could solve it actually helped me figure out how to solve the problem. So I was like, well, <laughs> it only has these tools, so you must be able to solve the problem with these tools. And then, then it became clear. I, I keep reading that these tools are actually used for, you know, not, you know this is a nice problem, but it, it can be used for actually open problems as well, right? Can you speak to like some of the open problems that these tools have been applied to? I, I remember when I first joined grad school, I always, when I found CVC4, I would always try to type up unsolvable problems like Fermat's <laughs> last theorem or something. Yeah, yeah. Or but uh, what what is currently being applied? So I think one of the most interesting things that I know about was using SAT solvers to solve the Pythagorean triples problem. And this was actually done a few years ago by Marine Hoyla at CMU and used a, a new technique to parallelize SAT called Cuban Conquer. And so the idea is you take a really hard SAT problem and then you just basically partition it into thousands and thousands of subproblems and just solve each of them, you know, in parallel. And this has been successful at solving some problems that were intractable before, uh, including some, you know, math problems like this Pythagorean triples one. So, yeah, I think there are, I mean, this, this has always been the case that there are some math problems that are sort of more susceptible to this brute force approach. And uh, this is where computers are just stunningly better than humans, right? If you give if you give a human, you know, a proof to check, and it's more than a couple pages, good luck, right? But a computer <laughs> yeah. could check a hundred megabyte proof in less than a second; it's no trouble, and it never makes a mistake, right? It just it gets it right every time. Same thing goes for the search algorithms; it can search, you know, millions, billions, trillions of possibilities. And it never makes a mistake. So, so there's this really interesting sort of complementary ability that computers have that, that humans don't have, which is this ability to do really big things really fast, as long as, you know, there's a, a set of rules that you can use. And so it's really a perfect, like automated reasoning is a perfect example of this, because if you just get your rules just right, you know, the computer can, can apply them much, much faster and better than a human ever could. One thing that comes up, you, you might have mentioned it, but one thing that comes up when we talk about this space is verification. Um, and verification, it appears not just here, but it appears every, it, it seems like it appears everywhere. Mm -hmm. um, like, what is verification? Why, why does it keep appearing in like things like software, hardware? It sure. comes up in mathematics. I mean, the um, way I think about it is it's just the natural science of doing uh, system building, right? I mean, hundreds of years ago, you built a bridge using sort of your best know-how, but then, you know, civil engineers came around and they had a science for it and there's equations and there's, you know, best practices. And now you build a bridge, it doesn't fall down because we understand all of those things. And I think verification is just the, that same scientific mindset brought to computer systems. And um, it just has has turned out to be in some ways much more difficult to bring this mathematical thinking to building software because uh, I think 
software is perhaps the most complicated thing that we've ever created uh, as humans. And in one book, I don't remember which one it was, but the they made this analogy that you have to understand, you know, something like 20 different orders of magnitude of detail because, you know, you start with a high level code and then there's the compiler and then there's the assembly language, which goes down to the machine code and the machine code is running on the circuits and the circuit has a hardware description language, which got compiled down into some digital gates and the gates are implemented using you know, silicon, and then there's all this physics involved and the light goes all the way down to the quantum level, right? So you've got to, if you really want to understand what's going on, <laughs> there's just an incredible amount of complexity there. And so it's a huge challenge, you know, to make these things work. And luckily, uh, we do have these automated reasoning tools that can do, that can, all, they're also extremely powerful. But I think there will always be this sort of arms race of the complexity of software and the ability of these tools to deal with it. Can you speak to well, why automated reasoning is, is so helpful for verifying these properties? Like say I have some problem, I want to verify some property. How can we begin like using an automated reasoning tool to approach this? So yeah, there's some interesting things going on. So one of the interesting things is that computer systems are inherently digital, not continuous, right? And so all this previous engineering work that people have done with calculus and, you know, limits and integrals and all that great stuff, it's like totally useless. Because if you know, if you know that, you know, a certain input does not create a bug, that tells you nothing about whether if you flip one bit, it will create a bug, yeah. right? There, it's like every single digital point is its own thing. I mean, that's not 100% true. There are some notions of, of continuity that you, can, that you can use in some cases. But for the most part, you know, it's this immense digital space and we cannot traverse it with continuous mathematics. So we have to use logic, right? So logic is the key to, to reasoning uh, discreetly about these things. And so automated reasoning has really, is, it's really just a branch of mathematical logic, I would say. And uh, it's become important because that is the tool that actually works when reasoning about uh, these systems is you want to model them as mathematical objects. And the mathematical objects that make the most sense are these uh, logical representations. And so now if you've got this, you know, big system and it's modeled as, as, as a bunch of logic, then you need some mathematical tools to reason about that. And the automated reasoning is, is what you come up with. And in, in many ways, this has driven the development of things like SMT solvers because uh, what frequently happens is you've got some new computer system or some problem in, in the space of reasoning about computer systems. And it's using some construct that we don't have a good way to model, right? And luckily, logic is a very um, flexible toolkit, right? So you can say, well, I'm going to add some new theory, right? I'm going to develop a theory that is specific for this reasoning domain. And that's kind of how SMT got started is that we were trying to solve these problems and we're trying to reason about, you know, real systems. And the real system does arithmetic modulo two to the n. And so you can't reason about that with regular arithmetic. So you need something like bit vectors, right? Or it's using these abstract data types. So wouldn't it be great if we could just reason at the level of abstract data types? Or it's 
reasoning about strings and string concatenations and substrings and all this weird stuff. So we'll build a theory around that. And so that has really, really evolved to meet this need of how do you, you know, think mathematically about systems and how do you approach that in a very um, rigorous way? So it's great that we're thinking rigorously about systems because it seems easier than ever to get on AWS or Azure or cloud and put together a very quick app. And before you know it, there might be real, real world safety critical situations, right? Like perhaps yeah. lives might be in the balance, right? Can you speak to this? Like some worst case scenarios of like unsafe software like being deployed in the world yeah. and the bugs that were there and perhaps how automated reasoning could have helped to step yeah. in yeah. or I mean, how it could keep stepping in. I think, you know, as with any sort of new technology, it's, you know, there are all kinds of bodies on the road uh, <laughs> that as that technology advances, right? And I mean, in the beginning, people just didn't understand any much about good software practices, right? Not even, not even with, with formal. So uh, in the 80s, for example, there was this, this famous uh, medical machine, I think it's called the Therac, and uh, what it was supposed to do. So it was a, a dual-use machine. It could either do x-rays or it could do radiation treatment. And the mm. difference was that a big um, sliding panel would come down if uh, it was x-rays and it would it would go up if it's radiation. So unfortunately, the software for this thing was written by like one guy who didn't test it very well. And so it turned out that if you hit a certain sequence of keys on the control panel, the uh, radiation shield did not come down. And several oh. people who were supposed to get x-rays got blasted with, you know, very large doses of, of radiation and and were severely injured. So that that's the kind of thing that like our modern software best practices would definitely have caught, you know, unit tests and and just, you know, regression testing and all of that stuff. Um, and certainly if someone had formally verified it, they would have caught that, right? Another really famous one in, uh, I think it was 95 or 96, the Ariane rocket, it exploded a few seconds after liftoff. This is a big European space project. And, you know, the rocket and cargo were valued at like half a billion dollars or something. And the reason was there was an unsafe uh, integer to floating point conversion. And it just, you know, somebody hadn't checked it. And somehow, you know, the one part of the system was trying to send an integer and the other part was reading it as a float or, or vice versa. And so then, you know, it just got the numbers completely wrong. And it just uh, broke apart. And I'll give you one more. This one's fun because it's personal. Uh, when I was at NYU, uh, I got to participate in, I think, the largest blackout in the history of the country. It blacked out, you know, lost power. The whole Northeast of the United States lost power. And uh, it turns out this was from a little utility company uh, called First Energy. I think it was in Ohio, actually. Yeah. And uh, yeah. And what happened was there was some, some alert had gone off and it was trying to send an error message, but the error message was crashing the, the system before <laughs> it could actually be monitored by anyone. It was just in this repeat loop. And by the, by oh. the time anyone figured out what was going on, it was too late, right? So these are all, you know, great examples. And there's many, many more, of course, especially now with like self-driving cars. And if you, I read just the other day that like, 
Um, there were something like 270 crashes with Teslas in self-driving mode or something last year. Mm. So yeah, there's lots of examples and we rely more and more on these systems every day. And uh, I think, you know, hopefully we're learning, right? So certainly there's become more of an engineering practice around building systems. And more and more when, when things are safety critical, uh, people are trying to bring in verification and formal methods because that's sort of the, the ultimate tool, right? If you can formally verify it, then you're done. You can go home. <laughs> and it's sort of akin to, you know, doing that analysis on that bridge that, that civil engineers do where they really can say with extremely high confidence that this thing is going to work. I don't know exactly when you went to grad school, but what got you excited about this problem when you were a young grad student? Oh, yeah. So actually, it goes even farther back. So as an, as an undergrad, well, I really liked computers and I really liked math. And I just really wanted to find some way to use both of them. And I even remember, before I knew anything about anything, I remember thinking how frustrating it was to debug programs and wouldn't it be great if you could just prove that your program was correct, right? I remember jotting some notes in a notebook. It's like, you know, can I prove that a program is correct? And then uh, I took my senior year undergrad, I took a class where I actually discovered, oh, wow, there's a, a field about this. And so that was when I first sort of got excited about it. And what was exciting was it brought together these things that I like. So I've, I always loved math. My dad is a math professor. Um, you know, I like math puzzles. I would take math classes for a break. Like they were really fun for me. So I wanted to be, be able to use that. But then I loved like the power of a computer, right? You can, it's like this, this incredible creative outlet. You can just create anything you can imagine. And so I wanted to bring those together somehow. And this just seemed like a really great uh, way to do that. And so when I went to grad school, I talked to, you know, my first my first visit day, I talked to David Dill, who became my advisor, and he was, you know, working on these problems. And I thought, this is a great, this is going to be a great thing to work on. Now, I started out sort of more working on, um, they, they were more interested in the verification problem, which I also thought was great. But I quickly realized that the tools we had to do the verification were not up to the job. And uh, so I sort of took this detour and said, well, I'm going to see if I can build some better tools. And I never came back, right? So that's what I've been doing ever since. Uh, because the problem to build those tools to solve those verification problems is just a fascinating and difficult and really fun challenge. And so that's that's where I ended up. And I'm I'm happy to be there. Were there any, you, you mentioned Turing, Girdle, uh, several. Is there anyone in particular that really inspired you? That's a great question. I think I was always kind of fascinated with Girdle. Yep. Um, I remember when I finally took a class where where I was able to understand the incompleteness theorem. I just was, I was like very excited. I was like, okay, I'm going to finally understand this great mystery, you know. Um, and and then when you actually get to it, it's like super complicated, and then it ends up being just kind of a, a lot of details, right? It's like too many <laughs> details to even deal with but but it's also very genius right it's like uh it's like the ultimate generalization of this statement is false paragraph right or uh paradox no. um so I, I thought that was really cool so i really thought girdle was fascinating and 
I've I've always looked up to, you know, just great mathematicians and beautiful and interesting things that they've created. I think Turing's uh, story is also very compelling, you know, just fascinating. And some of his work, uh, of course, groundbreaking. Boole, go all, you can go all the way back to Boole and uh, he was way ahead of his time. Satisfiability modulo theories. This, this, is, this is an intimidating name for a problem, <laughs> um, but it's also perhaps one of the most fundamental and intriguing problem in all of science. What is this problem? Okay, great. Um, I'll tell you a little bit about where that name came from too. So the name was actually invented by my my good friend and colleague Cesare Tinelli. Um, and before that, people were just talk, calling it decision procedures. Hmm. And the problem with that is it's way too general, right? A decision procedure is just any procedure for deciding any problem. <laughs> uh, and so, so he said, well, really, what we're doing is an extension of the Boolean satisfiability problem or even the first order satisfiability problem, but we're doing it with theories. And so let's call it satisfiability modulo theories. And this appeared in, in this paper in the journal, some journal in like 2000 or 2001. And uh, the name stuck. So that was, a, that was a good contribution he made. So what is the problem? So it's maybe easy to start with the, the Boolean satisfiability problem, which is just if I have a formula that has some Boolean variables that can be either true or false, uh, and, and you write you know, ands and ors and nots to connect these, these variables, then the question is, can you find an assignment? Can you give values to the variables that make the formula true, right? Yep. So if I have... P and Q is my formula. Well, if I make both P and Q true, then P and Q is also true. The formula is satisfied. But then some formulas cannot be satisfied, like P and not P. Uh, no matter what value you give to P, the formula value is default. So those are unsatisfiable formulas. Yeah. So Boolean formulas are great, but they're not very expressive. And if we want to solve hard problems, uh, translating them down into Boolean formulas is like a huge pain. So uh, wouldn't it be great if we could, you know, reason about satisfiability in a richer logic? And so first order logic gives you a lot more tools. Uh, you can have equality, you can have functions, you can have predicates, um, and you can have quantifiers, right? So it gives you a huge amount of expressive power, but the satisfiability problem is the same, is can you find values for the variables? And now you also have to find values for the functions and predicates. Um, and you're even allowed to pick what set the variables range over, right? So Boolean variables range over true and false. First order variables can range over any set you can dream up, right? So you have a, a lot of, a lot more power in how you interpret the formulas as well. And that's the first order satisfiability problem. Can you find it for given the first order formula? Is there a way to make it true? Now, first order satisfiability and first order reasoning actually was one of the first branches of automated reasoning. And people did a lot of work in that area. Um, it's also known as ATP or automatic theorem proving. And it works great in some cases, but what it didn't work great for was reasoning about these very particular domains that were coming up in real verification problems, like I said, with arithmetic or arithmetic modulo to the N. And so I guess what we sort of realized was we need sort of specialized ways to reason about these domains. And first order logic is too general. Now you can try to axiomatize the domains, right? Write a bunch of formulas that capture uh, the properties of arithmetic. But, you know, now our good friends 
uh, in mathematical logic can tell us that that's not so great because some of these theories are not even finitely axiomatizable, right? So you can't capture everything about arithmetic with a finite number of axioms in first-order logic. So what you can do is you can say, well, forget first-order logic. I'm going to restrict the number of interpretations to those that belong to this particular domain I care about. And that's where the idea of a theory comes in. So the, a theory is, is going to say, I'm going to give some very specific meaning to certain symbols. And you can define it sort of axiomatically, but you can also define it in this model theoretic way where you just say, hey, if you see a variable X, it has to be an integer, okay? It can't be, you know, the set ABC or, or something else. It has to be the actual integers. And so the way SMT has evolved is we want to solve the satisfiability problem, but with respect to some very specific interpretations that match, you know, domains that we actually care about. Um, and what's great about the T in SMT, the theory, is it's not just one theory. It can be any combination of theories. And there's some really cool uh, fundamental work on how if you, if you have a single theory, you can combine it with these other theories and make that all work. Um, but what's great is now you can go into some new domain and you can build a new theory for it. Um, you can write a decision procedure for that theory and now you can pull it into your SMT solver and it can reason about that plus all the other theories that it has. Can you be a bit explicit with the theories that you ha have in these solvers? Yeah, like so let's take an example, right? So a good example is the theory of arithmetic, right? So what, in order to define a theory, uh, I have to tell you what the syntax and the semantics are of that theory. So for syntax, we can say, we can just be very simple. We can say, well, it's the symbol zero, the symbol one, the symbol plus, and we can even stop for stop there for now, right? Yep. Zero, one, plus, maybe less than, right? <laughs> so we have a, a predicate symbol. So now you can actually represent any natural number with one plus one plus one as many times as you need, right? And you can represent uh, multiplications by a constant by taking some variable X or some term and adding it to itself a bunch of times. Uh, and then the semantics are just that zero means the actual number zero. One means the actual number one, plus means the normal addition in over the integers. And um, see, maybe you need minus as well if you want the integers. And, and then a variable, x or y, has to range over the integers. Okay, and so now if I write a formula, this it's just like algebra, right? It's like linear algebra is what this theory was able to represent. So I can write a formula, I can write you know, a conjunction of formulas, which is like solving systems of equations. And, um, and the meaning is just, can I find integer values for those variables uh, that make the formulas true, right? So that's an example of the theory. Uh, but in general, I could book in, pick any set of symbols I want and pick any, you know, set to be the domain uh, and come up with some set of rules for reasoning about those symbols in that domain, and that could be a theory. So your tool that implements this problem is called the Cooperating Validity Checker, but it's more famously known for its acronym CVC, uh, currently mm -hmm. FIVE. Can you speak to the history of this tool and yeah, some of the recent so, developments? Sure. So when I was a grad student, actually, the very first version of anything like this was a tool that was just called VC for Validity Checker. 
And uh, it was developed by Robert Jones, who was a student in David Dill's group before I came. And so then I took over that tool. And like I said, we were trying to use it for some verification and quickly realized that it needed to reason about a bunch of things that it couldn't. And so we added, uh, I was working with another student named Jeremy Levitt, and we added a whole bunch of functionality to this tool and decided we, we needed to give it a new name. So we called it SVC or Stanford Validity Checker. And uh, this was, you know, a workhorse for a bunch of verification projects. It was, you know, part of my thesis and Jeremy's thesis. But then sort of towards the end of my grad school experience, that's also when this satisfiability revolution hit. And uh, I was working with another student, Aaron Stump, and we decided to build a new system where the Boolean reasoning would be done by a SAT solver, by one of these fancy new SAT solvers. So we're going to do, we said, let's have the SAT solver do what it's good at, the Boolean reasoning, and then we'll just build these little theory solvers that reason about the theories, and together, you know, maybe they'll do something great. And so that was actually sort of the first I, I don't necessarily say that we were the only ones who came up with it, but I think it was sort of co-invented in several places. But this was the, you know, sort of the first time that the modern SMT architecture was put together where you have a SAT solver interacting with these theory solvers. So Aaron was working on the theory solvers and I was working on the SAT part. And uh, we had a paper in CAV 2002 that was, I think, one of the, one of the foundational papers in this area. Um, and so to come up with a name, you know, Aaron was a little bit forward looking. He said, well, we're going to graduate and we may not be at Stanford anymore, but I want to keep working on this stuff. So let's just call it the cooperating validity ch checker so that we can all cooperate together at whatever institutions we may be at. Uh, plus, the theories have to cooperate with each other, too. So, you know, it's all about cooperation. So we, we thought that was a pretty good name. Even though you ended up back at Stanford at the end of the day. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, and then the other thing that's funny is uh, the reason that there are so many versions of the tool, uh, and I'm not making this up, I wish I were, is that every time we sort of got, what, what would happen is we would get to a point where the architecture of the system was not sufficient for what we wanted to do next, right? So we we thought we had a good architecture, but then... You know, that we just added so many features and there were so many new features we wanted to add that suddenly we outgrew the architecture and we had to scrap it and start over. So we had CVC and we threw that out and, and did CVC Lite. And then CVC Lite morphed into CVC 3. But then we threw that out and mm -hmm. did CVC 4. And I'm happy to say that the architecture of CVC 4, I think we finally were careful enough and had enough good <laughs> software uh, <laughs> practices that when it came time to do CVC5, we didn't throw out CVC4. We just sort of, you know, moved it to a new repository and, and called it 5. What were the um, biggest... And the reason for that, the reason for that was twofold. One is the p set of people working on it were almost completely different from the ones that had built CVC4. And we thought it was time to give them some recognition, probably long past time. And then the other is we had sort of a a backlog of things we wanted to fix and and do better. And we just made a big push and implemented all those things. So there really was kind of a big step between CVC4 and CVC5. Okay, so we have we have these theories which have syntax and what what it means, like, or not what it means, what what it, how to represent it. And we have some like semantics, which is what it means. 
And together we combine these to make a theory. And now we have several theories that we can apply to very broad problems, right? Uh, what are sort of the engineering challenges as we have more and more theories, harder and harder problems? Um, what are the engineering challenges at both the making the tools to solve these problems, um, as well as accounting for the applications of these tools? Because it's such a wide audience. It's such a black box problem. Uh, yeah. How do you go about this engineering process? Well, you know, it's really interesting. And um, the fact that we had to start over so many times, maybe, you know, either we're just really dumb or it's a really hard problem. But uh, it's a really fun and unique challenge because you might think that, well, you know, this is sort of a, a theoretician's playground, right? We're manipulating formulas and we're implementing logic rules and you know, a bunch of theory people should do this, but actually you need like the best systems engineers possible because the scalability of these things just hundred percent depends on really good engineering right down to like managing your own memory, keeping, you know, the data structure footprint small and all kinds of, you know, very clever tricks. I mean, if you look at even just SAT solvers and you see like, what are the big changes that made them faster. They're sort of partly algorithmic and partly like clever hack tricks, right? And, and often the two merge together. There's, there's this great example of this trick. It's called the two watched literal trick, which I'm sure you know about in SAT solving. So normally what happens in a SAT solver, you spend all your time, you know, doing these uh, case analyses on the variables. Like, is this variable X, is it true or is it false? And so a very common thing is you make the variable true, and then you have to sort of look at what all the consequences are. And if you have a really big SAT problem, maybe you have a thousand, a hundred thousand, a million clauses. Now you got to go search all those clauses to see if they have the variable X in it and it, if you can like throw them out, right? That's just going to take you forever. So the watch literal trick is every clause only keeps track of two variables. And turns out, you know, I won't go into the reasons why, but that's enough. And so if you're not a variable that that clause is watching, you don't have to look at that clause at all. In fact, when X gets set to true, all I have to do is look at all the clauses that are watching X. And this is maybe, you know, on the order of uh, a hundredth or a thousandth of all the clauses. Um, and this is like, this like sped things up immensely, right? So the, there's all these like low level tricks like this. And in SMT solvers, there's just even more tricks, right? Because the problem's more complicated, it's more expressive, every theory is a little bit different. And so you have to do all kinds of clever things. You have to be able to backtrack very quickly, uh, meaning if you, if you make some decision and you update your data structures and then you want to take that decision back, you have to unupdate your data structures to where they were before. And we have, you know, low-level mechanisms for doing this very fast um, that are like carefully tied to, you know, pooled memory representations and all this stuff. So there's like, it, I think it's really fun because you get to, you get to be like a super hacky engineer software, you know, system software guy. But at the same time, like you better understand the theorem and you better understand the theory uh, in order to implement it. So you have to, you have to know everything uh, in between. So I, I think it's really fun because you really get to 
do both the theory and the practice. Yeah, it's a bit of a pipe dream, right? For a, a, like a computer scientist, you get all of the systems research, right? You have to have very fast tools. You get some of the theoretical research, right? Because it's one of the most deeply theoretical problems in computer science and math. But another cool thing is it has really cool applications, right? Let me tell you like about my favorite kind of research pro project in this area. And I'll give you an example from this year. Oh, great. So uh, we were collaborating with a group at Facebook that was working on verifying smart contracts for, uh, for you know, their, they had this smart contract language called Move. And so uh, actually my former PhD advisor, David Dill, was in the group and they built this tool called the Move Prover. And something that was coming up a lot, is that, and the Move Prover like takes some specifications and translates it down through a bunch of tools into SMT. Hmm. So what they were finding is they needed to do a lot of reasoning about uh, finite vectors, right? So it's a very common data type, shows up in lots of languages, and the SMT tools don't exactly have that. They have, they have a theory of arrays, but arrays are sort of infinite and they're kind of, you know, you can't do something like append two arrays together or push an element on the end of an array very easily. And so we were looking at this and we said, hey, we can do something. We can build a new theory of sequences. And the theory of sequences will precisely, you know, match this uh, idea of vectors. So we started working on it. It was, it was, um, we were actually generalizing the theory of strings because strings are just, you know, vectors of characters. And so we said, all right, let's just make vectors of arbitrary types. That'll be sequences. And it started to work, but it was kind of hacky. And then we said, hey, let's write a paper about it. And then we had this really fun iteration where like the implementers were trying to make it work and the theory people were trying to prove the theorems and we kept finding problems and the other person would be like, oh, well, I know how to fix that in the implementation. And they're like, oh, that means we need this new rule in the theory. And then we'd find like a bug in the proof in the theory. And they would say, hey, what does the implementation do in that case? And sometimes they had it right or sometimes they didn't, right? And yeah. so it was this really fun ping pong until finally at the end, we had this 35 page proof of correctness and we had the tool running without any bugs and it was solving the problems that we got from Facebook. So that was like my favorite, that's like my favorite example of how to do uh, research in SMT. You have like a real problem that nobody can solve. You prove a bunch of theorems, you write a bunch of code, and at the end of the day, you have a lot of confidence that you, that your tool can now address this problem. And it, it's interesting, all this just comes from like the syntax and semantics of theories, right? It's a, yeah. a lot of the difficulty, in the application seems to be in the modeling, right? Like coming up with the right model for the solver to work. Can you, can you speak to how a user can like, like make, it, make it more approachable to model these problems because it, it, it can be technical, right? You need to write these long, yeah. rigorous, logical equations. And even if it's programmatically done, it sometimes you never know if the, if the bug is in uh, the code itself or the abstraction of the code itself, right? Right, right. I mean, it's, it's, I don't think there's an easy answer to that question. My ideal world would be that, you know, anybody who's trying to encode stuff would talk to the developer team and we could work together because this is not always the best for short-term results. But what, what's best for the long-term is if you write your formulas in uh, a form that's as close as possible to the application, right? So yeah. don't, 
you know, don't change your, like if you want to, if you have an operator in your application that's doing something funky, don't translate it into, you know, several basic operators, leave it in the, in this funky high level operator and talk to the solver developers and say, Hey, what's it going to take for you to support this funky operator that I have in my application? Because it's always better for the solvers to have as much information about the domain as possible. Now, maybe the solver will decide to break it down into parts, or maybe it will try to support that natively somehow. Um, but if you break it down into parts first, then the solver doesn't have that option anymore. So yeah, my ideally what you would do is work with the solver developers and say, hey, I have this interesting thing I'm trying to encode. What do you recommend? And maybe we can do a project together. Some basic things that I believe in and, and note, I'm not everyone agrees with me, <laughs> is that you should try to avoid quantifiers whenever possible. So modeling things with quantifiers, of course, is very powerful, but solvers, you know, the solvers are getting better at reasoning with quantifiers, but you really, you really cross a line of sort of predictability and stability once you introduce quantifiers. Like it might work great or it might not work at all. And it's really hard to predict. Where does, so, the, where does the complexity come from? Well, as soon as you have quantifiers, you are undecidable, yeah. right? Uh, because just what, what functions with... Again? Yeah, yeah, so great. Yeah, good question. So very fundamental question in logic, right? Is let's say I have some set of objects and then, you know, I, I know what the set is. And you're going to ask me, here I have an object, is it in the set, right? Now, if, if I can tell you, no matter what object you give me, whether it's in the set or not, then, I, then there's a way to decide uh, whether things are in the set. Now, in computer science, we want to know whether a computer can answer a question like that. So we might come up with some set, and then we'll ask, well, can a computer just tell me the answer to whether this thing is in the set or not? And you might think that, well, it's just a matter of programming, but it turns out that there are some questions, some sets, for which a computer can't answer the question every time. And this is essentially what Gödel showed with his incompleteness theorem, is that there are questions like, can you prove that this statement is false, right? And basically what happens is the computer's hands are tied. It can't prove it one way or the other, or, or basically any algorithm that's going to work one for, for showing uh, valid theorems, not going to be able to show that one and so on. So there are just certain kinds of questions that computers cannot always answer, right? And it turns out that if you have first-order logic and quantifiers and you ask the question, is this a valid theorem? That is a kind of question that you cannot always answer. Um, and it's because you can encode using the language of first-order logic a theorem that basically says, I cannot be proved, right? And now if you can prove that theorem, then you just showed that your, that your set of, that your logical reasoning is false because you proved that the thing cannot be proved. And if you can't prove the theorem, well, that was a question you couldn't answer. When you look at the underlying complexity to like, in the worst case complexity, you, we always talk in worst case, there's, there's, there's almost two cases of complexity, the worst case complexity and then the user case complexity when it comes to these tools, right? Yeah. When we have a problem or like an instance of a problem that's really close to like undecidable, what sort of characteristics does it have? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a great question. Um, 
So, so I think I mentioned this earlier, but one of, I think the great breakthroughs in automated reasoning is a mindset breakthrough. It's the mindset that just because something has a bad complexity class doesn't mean we shouldn't try to solve it, right? So for a long time, people thought this about Boolean satisfiability. It's like, oh, it's NP complete. We'll never be able to solve it efficiently. It just turned out not to be true. Now, it's not because the worst case uh, behavior changed. It's still bad. But what we discovered is that the common case or the cases that we care about that are coming from real applications and real problems, most of the time, those can be solved fast. And my own sort of personal view on this is those problems have some structure. Like somebody, you know, wrote that program and had in their head a simple idea for why it should work. And so there probably is a simple proof for why the thing is the way it is. And what I, the way I think about modern SAT solvers is they've gotten really, really good at finding simple proofs if they exist. Mm. Now, what we know is that in some cases, a simple proof doesn't exist and those problems are still hard, but those are not by and large the problems that we get from real applications. So I think that when we're looking at, you know, solving problems that are in a difficult complexity class, NP-complete or P-space or X-time or even undecidable, right? I think it's become very apparent that those worst case complexities may or may not matter, but what really matters is what are the kinds of problems that you're going to get in practice? And, you know, even for some undecidable problems, so for example, the theory of strings with just the length operator and the concatenation operator, uh, it's already unknown whether that's decidable, right? But we solve problems with it all the time because the problems we get in practice don't actually fall into that, that little corner of the, of the world where things are really hard. So it really depends and it's hard to predict. Like I said, often if you throw quantifiers in, that's like a pretty good way to move closer to that undecidability barrier um, where things are going to get hard and, and you're not going to solve it. But, you know, Rustin Leno built a whole career out of solving problems with quantifiers with his boogie verifier. And Z3 got tuned to be really, really good at solving quantified <laughs> problems coming from boogie. So it just really depends on the application and, uh, and sort of what the pattern of problems are that you're going to see. And I think that's a huge insight. I mean, it's uh, an amazing opportunity for the field because you don't have to give up when you get these bad complexity results. And what we've seen over and over again is if you understand the domain, uh, you really can solve it, um, even if it's uh, the problem in general is undecidable. Going back to applications, you know, with, with these you know, powerful tools, right, we're able to, and with the right, like domain understanding, we can build models to solve to, to solve and verify various properties. Um, but one area that's always been hard for researchers to understand themselves is AI, right? It's hard to understand what a neural network is going to do. If there was a tool to compete with an SMT solver for its black boxness, it might be a neural network or a reg some regression model. Um, oh boy, I would say a neural network is way more black boxy than an SMT solver, right? I mean, an SMT solver may be hard to understand for some people, but it's, you know, the code's all there, the algorithms are understood, you can read papers, you can read the code and you can figure it out. But, you know, once you have like three or four layers of a neural network, just forget about it. There's no hope. 
and understanding what's going on. Yeah. I, I never expected to hear you say that. Um, but, you know, one area where like, like SMT solvers have been really popular lately is in like verifying properties of neural networks. Yeah. Um, and applications. And can you sp speak to some of the recent developments here? So I'll tell you another anecdote here. Um, this came about, so I have a colleague in uh, aeronautical engineering. His name's Michael Kokendorfer. He's also my next door neighbor. Uh, and our kids are good friends. And he came to me one day and, and he is, uh, what he's famous for is he invented the collision avoidance system that is on every international airplane in the world now. Um, and it's just a little box that sits there and normally does nothing. And only if like all else fails, air traffic control screws up, pilot screws up, and you're about to hit another aircraft, the little box lights up and tells you what to do. And the other aircraft also has a box and they ideally tell you to do different things so that you don't crash, right? And so he's he invented the system that everyone's using now, and it's very robust and it's very cool. So he was working on a problem for collision avoidance for drones, mm -hmm. for very small aircraft. And the solution he had for the big airliners involved, you know, this lookup table that's, you know, many gigabytes. And that just wasn't going to fly for a small drone. You just can't afford to put a multi-gigabyte memory. Uh, nobody's going to pay for that, right? Mm -hmm. So... They came up with an idea of using uh, a set of neural networks and it compressed the memory you needed by thousands of times. And uh, what was interesting is it actually performed better in simulation as well. And so they got really excited about this, but uh, the FAA was like, hold on, we don't know anything about what neural networks are. How do you know this thing is safe? And so he came to me and said, hey, can you verify a neural network? And um, at the time, you know, this was sort of my first exposure. I'm like, what's a neural network? <laughs> and so he explained and I was like, oh, it's just a bunch of linear algebra. Yeah, we have theories for that. Let's let's try it. So we plugged it into an SMT solver. Didn't work at all. And and what happened is so these neural networks had these activation functions and the activation function is not linear arithmetic. It's actually a very little bit of nonlinearity and we can model it. But to model it, we have to use this operator that basically does a case split. And so the networks that he had, they had about 300 activation functions. They had exactly 300 activation functions, which turned into 300 binary case splits in the SMT solver. And so we had to explore two to the 300 cases, which, as I explained to you know various interviewers who are asking us about the work, I said, that's more than the number of atoms in the universe. And they didn't believe me. But it's true. So two to the 300 <laughs> is a big number. Uh, and you don't want to do, you know, exhaustive case analysis on that. So what we did, we built a new uh, theory, essentially, that knew what these activation functions were. And it didn't have to model it with this case analysis. Instead, it was just a part of the theory. And we modified a well-known procedure called the simplex procedure for reasoning about linear arithmetic. And so what it would do is it would do the normal stuff. And then every once in a while, it would look at one of these activation functions and say, do I need to do something with this too? And if it did, it would tweak it. And if not, it would leave it alone. And just this sort of idea that you could bring the reasoning about the activation functions into the inner loop of the theory solver solved our problem. And what we ended up doing is then most of the time, like 90% of the time, we didn't have to do that case analysis. We still had to do it about 10% of the time. 
but um, two to the thirtieth is a tractable number, yeah. and that's that's then we could uh, you know solve the problems in about an hour. So we we built a system for this, and we wrote a paper, and I think this is now like if not my most highly cited paper, my like second most highly cited <laughs> paper, and that was even just five years ago. So this has become a, a big field is reasoning about these neural networks. And, um, you know, we can now reason about tens of thousands of activation functions, not just 300, but we're still way below, you know, the big networks that are being used in industry. So this maybe comes to another question of scalability. You know, you say it's not too many activation functions, but you'd be surprised what you could do with a, a very small neural network with clean data, right? And if it's mm -hmm. trained appropriately. There's a lot of big ideas in this space, right? There's there's a lot of sort of sub like small algorithms that all get bundled together into a solver. Um, mm -hmm. We have like CDCL, right, and the two-watch literal scheme that you were mentioning. Uh, we have uh, Simplex, which has been just I've heard people say it's our best algorithm. What sort of characteristics do these sort of problems have? It seems like there's these fundamental decision procedures that lay at the core of deciding these theories, like SAT, like uh, integer linear programs, yeah. like bit vectors. How do we find the next one? Yeah, so it's a great question. And, and my answer is we find it by finding the next problem that our current solver can't solve, right? And that's, I mean, that's my favorite thing to do. Like if someone sends me a problem and the solver can't solve it, I'm like, great, got another PhD thesis. Mm -hmm. uh, but the thing that's great is that we do find ways to solve these, yeah. right? So essentially what, a, what these solvers become is they become this interacting system of modules with each module has a lot of power and a lot of generality. So you have like this preprocessor that just, you know, works on formulas before the solving ever stop, starts. You have this rewriter that, you know, puts things into different forms that are equivalent, but maybe easier for the solver. You have these different theory solvers. And then even within the theory solvers, we have like multiple layers and all these sorts of things that we've come up with. And so what's great about being the solver developer is um, I have like, it's, it's like a, you know, it's like one of these steampunk machines with a million <laughs> dials, right? But I know what all the dials do. And so you yeah. give me a new problem and I'm like, I just have to find the right dial and it's going to solve your problem. And it, and it does. Like, maybe we need to add something to the theory. Maybe we need to add a preprocessing pass, fix the rewriter, whatever. But by looking at the problem and understanding why it's not being solved, you can usually figure out a way to solve it. And again, that's because these problems are coming from something real, right? Mm -hmm. They're not they're not randomly generated or, or, you know, designed to be adversarial. They're coming from something real. And um, there's usually some way to leverage that, that domain knowledge and give it to the solver. Okay, so Hilbert proposed the Enscheiten problem. And this, this problem is beautiful. We want to know if something is valid. It's, it's one of the most ambitious problems ever, ever set in math, right? Mm -hmm. But it's overwhelmed with these negative results. Uh, Godel's incompleteness results. You're still here. It hasn't stopped these engineers from trying to engineer these new decision procedures despite all these negative results. Yeah. Will engineers ever stop trying? Is there a barrier? What do you, what well, there's this looming negative result that might come up in the future, but it seems like we keep pushing towards it. Right? We right. Keep, we, we're engineering through the the undecidability. 
Right. Um, so, so I think, you know, yeah, it was a big disappointment to mathematicians everywhere. This introduction of the word undecidability, right? It just sort of strikes at the heart of the idea that math can answer every question by showing that there are questions that it fundamentally cannot answer. Finding out whether an arbitrary formula in first order logic is a valid formula, that is undecidable. Um, however, you know, I think what people, you know, maybe one of the first rays of hope was um, Pressburger, who like not too many years later showed that integer arithmetic is decidable, right? So, okay, you can't pose a problem in general first order logic, but if you just use that theory with zero, one, plus and minus, and the uh, variables are integers, guess what? That is decidable, even with quantifiers, right? You can just, you can eliminate the quantifiers, you can decide it. And that's kind of remarkable, right? So there's actually this pretty useful class of things that you can decide, even so you can't decide this mo more general one. So, so one of the big insights in sort of being able to move forward after undecidability is you change the problem a little bit and you can change an undecidable problem into a decidable problem. And often the thing that's undecidable is too general anyway. It's like if your problem is undecidable, you've, you're trying to do something too big, maybe. Seat. And often the kinds of things we care about in practice are not that big. They're in some smaller uh, section of the search space. And so, you know, Pressburger arithmetic was actually also the motivation for the original uh, DPLL algorithm, which was the, sort of what all SAT solvers are based on. And, um, well, da Davis, Martin Davis, uh, actually working at NYU. Uh, my former institution, built a little program that was able to prove something like, you know, I think it proved something like, I don't remember what it was, something about even numbers, like something super trivial, right? Yeah. <laughs> like a 2x is an even number or something. Okay. But, uh, you know, it proved it automatically, right? That was the big breakthrough. And and they you could do that because the problem was decidable. And so what we've done, I think, in automated reasoning is we've We've carved out this space where we move right up to the decidability border, but try to stay within it. Now, sometimes we venture across a little bit, like with this theory of strings, but that's because we know that the problems we get in practice don't trigger this, uh, the behavior that goes off into undecidability land, at least most of the time. Uh, so yeah, it's, this, it's a bit of a balancing act, but again, the reason to be optimistic and not sort of be worried about the looming power of undecidability is that the problems that most, most of the problems we really care about, there is some structure and some reason and some order as to why these things should work. And we can leverage that, we can put that inside the tool, and then the tool can reason about those kinds of problems. One of the coolest things about SMT is its applications. And as these, as the hardware gets faster, as the engineering gets better, uh, we'll find more and more applications that were previously not possible to become possible. At a personal level, as well as a societal level, which ones are you the most excited of? And which ones are you the most fearful of? Sure, yeah. There's sort of a current uh, killer app that we've got going on right now um, that's very exciting. And this is this uh, Zelkova tool that Amazon uses. And basically what this tool does is you have some data in a bucket on AWS 
And there's a security policy language, this IAM language that uh, Amazon has designed. And you can write very general policies that say who has access to that data. Now, what they discovered really early on is that the language was so feature rich and it was based on logic and people didn't understand logic well enough or the language well enough and they would make mistakes. And, you know, you screw up an operator and you change an and into an or on accident and now suddenly your data is public to the whole internet, right? And this is very bad. (laughs) You know, people lose their jobs, their careers, their companies, uh, not good. So what they did is they built a little tool and what the tool can do is a very simple thing. It can just tell you whether one security policy is stronger than another one, Hmm. right? And the way it does this is it translates this containment question down into the theory of strings and some other logic, right? Some SMT formula. But what's cool now is every time someone writes writes or changes a security policy, they just check, hey, are you stronger than the public policy? And if the answer is no, you get a big public button on your interface and you think, oh, what did I just do? I made a mistake, right? And that is super valuable. Like customers pay top dollar just for that feature and the customers love it. And they're calling, you know, CVC5 or CVC4 like millions and millions of times a day just to solve this little problem. Another thing that's really cool about this is we developed the string solver to solve a completely different problem. It was to do symbolic execution of, you know, programs manipulating strings and and checking like security of attacks on web servers and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Uh, And here they came along and they did something completely different with it. We didn't even know they were doing it until, you know, they announced it at a big meeting in 2018. And, you know, now we're working very closely with them because it's part of their product line and, you know, they need, they need bug fixes and and they're supporting our research and, and it's great. So that's like a super fun, exciting killer app uh, of an example of, of what, you know, odd mood reason can do. Now, what am I most excited about? I mean, I think I'm, I would really love <laughs> for these tools to be more integrated into sort of daily software practice. No. I mean, even, even our group who builds SMT solvers, we don't actually use automated reasoning to verify our tools because it's too hard, right? Yeah. Um, like we'll do paper and pencil proofs that the algorithms are correct, but then we implement them and we don't check the implementation because it's just too hard. Now we have even other the, tricks. Even the SAT solver, I think. Yeah. The, yeah. the verified one, it's much smaller than an industrial That's grade right. one. That's right. So it would be great, you know, if someday the development environment that you use to program is so integrated with these verification tools that it's like not much effort to, you know, maybe you don't prove your whole program correct, but, you know, maybe there's big sections of it where you can say, oh, I think this should be a true invariant and let me just write it there. And oh, yeah, sure enough, it is. The tool just checked it. Um, Now, there is a tool called Daphne that kind of works like this. It it has its own language. It's being used in some places, but not really seriously uh, as as an implementation language. But it does kind of show what's possible that you could imagine integrating your your reasoning with your programming. And it's probably not the case that every program should be verified. I mean, some programs, it just doesn't matter that much if there's a bug, like if you're writing code to recommend the next great Netflix movie 
and maybe you made a bug and you recommended the wrong one, probably it wasn't worth spending, you know, multiple months to verify that code, right? You want to get it out to market first. And there's lots of code in that category. But it would be great if the programmers had the option to verify their code without a lot of extra effort if they know how. And it would be great to lower the barrier for, of course, safety critical code where it makes a big difference. What about something you're fearful of? Um, one application that I've heard a, heard of a couple times, um, there's, I know there's a couple startups pursuing this, is integrating AI and automated reasoning with the law, right? Mm. So if we have a government agency leveraging our tools, could that be a, a more just society? Or there's surely going to be some kinks yeah. that would need to get worked out, right? Well, have you thought about like these more like societal level right like, like right. Several, several several years down the road but these societal applications that yeah not necessarily emerge. several years down the road uh <laughs> yeah so before i answer that i mean ai is a whole other can of worms so before yeah. i go there let me just start with like what could be what what is there to maybe be afraid of in automated reasoning i think that you know automated reasoning is a very powerful tool and the thing to be afraid of is if if the tool is trying to be used for evil, right? And not for good. So a good example of this is you can use solvers to break security, right? And now I don't know of any examples, but I'm sure it's been done. You can take some code that's on the, you know, maybe some web server or something that's supposed to be secure. You can analyze the binary, you can turn it into the theory of bit vectors, and you can ask a question like, hey, is it possible to get to this, you know, protected part of the code? And, you know, if you, it's way more complicated than that, but if you get the details just right, uh, and you ask a solver, and the solver is sufficiently powerful, it can actually tell you exactly how to exploit a security vulnerability. This was actually done by a, a guy, David Brumley, he's a professor at CMU. Uh, he did this this thing where he was like finding security vulnerabilities in Windows and just sending them to Microsoft. And it's like, yep, found another one. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they had to, at some point, they like had to create this whole program to, you know, send out all these patches because he was finding all these vulnerabilities. So I don't know, you know of concrete examples of bad actors doing that, but they certainly could. And as the tools become more powerful and, you know, more able to reason uh, about bigger and bigger things, you could certainly imagine them being used to, to break our best security and things like that. So that's why, it, you know, that's why we have to verify those, <laughs> those systems and make sure they're secure because otherwise these kinds of tools can actually find the vulnerabilities. When I was an undergrad, uh, I stumbled upon the movie, The Traveling Salesman. Have you heard of it? The, this group of mathematicians, they they solve P equals NP, mm. and, and and it was equals in this in this movie. Oh, okay. Um, they don't they don't they don't talk about the details or anything, but it's just right. how quickly the government got on top of everything. Are you ever like afraid one day, <laughs> perhaps there's a bit momentum, right, for mm -hmm. a big breakthrough? Well, it I will sort of uh, overtake your. You know what I mean? Like it'll. Yeah, I, I don't. I mean, I'm not afraid of that. I mean, I think the sort of worst case scenario has already happened in those terms because the NSA already has, you know, these incredibly powerful toolkits for spying and cracking. And that software has already been leaked and used for, you know, malicious purposes. That sort of thing is probably going to keep happening, right? The, yeah. the governments, the NSA is going to do stuff and 
you know, hopefully someone will will find out about it and then there'll be an uproar. And and as long as we're in a free country, there's hopefully enough checks and balances. It, it, it's interesting. We, we say the word solver a lot. Mm-hmm. And people often ask me, why do we say solver? And well, the reason is because you just give it a problem and it solves it, right? Right. I recently found out about these things called exploit brokers, where mm-hmm. you just find a exploit in some bug and then you can start selling it to brokers. Right. Those brokers could interact with governments or other hackers, or even the owners of the source code themselves. Have you run into any of these situations or like hear any stories about maybe people leveraging tools you've built to sell them to yeah, these people? Yeah, I, I poked around a bit and I didn't come up with any, uh, I wasn't able to find any examples of that. I do know that Mate Sos, who's a, a SAT researcher, he built this tool called Crypto Mini Sat, and one of the main things he was trying to do with with that particular SAT solver is break crypto algorithms. But again, he was a white hat guy. So he was trying to, you know, make the systems more secure. I mean, I'd be very surprised if there had never been an example of somebody using a solver to find a bug and, and selling it to an exploit broker. But I, I don't know of any examples. Yeah. Let's switch gears back to AI. Let's be a bit more positive. Um, <laughs> what? What are the big, what's the biggest open question or questions in computer science, AI, mm. and automated reasoning right now? Oh, well, I think the big question is, you know, is general artificial intelligence possible? Yeah. And if so, how far away is it? Do you have thoughts on this? I do. And, you know, it's funny. I have a, I have a grad student who's super interested in this and he's working, you know, he wants to basically dedicate his life to the long-term risk from AI problem. And uh, he's, he's very passionate about it. And we argue all the time about how far away is it, right? What I side think it's you far away. Yep. And I keep telling him, look, there have been big breakthroughs lately, but all of these systems, they're just doing pattern matching. They aren't doing, you know, the sort of reasoning that, that I consider intelligent. And he's like, well, can you show me that intelligence is any more than just really good pattern matching? And then we get into a big argument about that. And, and I can't, right? So maybe, you know, human brains are just really, really good pattern matchers and all high level reasoning is just better and better pattern matching. But I, I, my feeling is it's not. My feeling is there's something more there. And so to get to AGI, we're going to have to have some other breakthrough besides just bigger and bigger neural networks. Now, you know, it is, they keep coming up with new stuff that is mind boggling, right? I don't know if you've seen like Google's thing that can explain a joke. I mean, that oh, I is haven't seen that. pretty darn impressive. Yeah, you type in just any joke and it'll give you like a detailed explanation of why it's funny, which I would have a hard time doing actually, <laughs> but it's really, the explanations are pretty good. So this is like, wow, you know, that's, that's like, wow. Or Maybe these generative, I don't know if you've seen these generative models where you can type yep. in like dog with a beret and it'll generate a very realistic picture of exactly the, that. The new Dolly model that came out. Right, right. So, I mean, this stuff is pretty astounding. But again, to me, it does not, it hasn't yet reached the level of uh, general intelligence. So uh, one thing, though, that's interesting and, and a little bit scary, I guess, is I, I was at a, one of the NeurIPS conferences and they pulled everybody to ask them, how, lo- how long do you think it will be before computer can do every task that a human can better than a human? 
which I thought was extremely high bar. And the majority of people said like less than 50 years, I think. So, I mean, maybe there's a bias in that crowd. (laughs) I would have said not in a hundred years, you know, there will still be tasks that humans can do better. So anyway, yeah, I think obviously these systems are getting better and better and able to do more and more things. But what I'm more scared of is not that the computers will gain consciousness and turn on their masters, right? Like every plot of every Hollywood movie, but that And maybe even humans, over the weekend, right? Yeah, yeah. But that humans will use these AI systems that are getting better and better in some malicious way, right? I, yeah. I'm not so worried about the computers. I'm more worried about the humans who have repeatedly demonstrated their ability to exercise extremely bad judgment. And now what if you give them like a drone that can, you know, kill someone anywhere in the world with like perfect accuracy because that's what it's been programmed to do and it has such good AI and it can do it, right? So that's, that's I think, the more scary thing is as these AI systems get better and can do, you know, astonishing tasks, what if someone turns that to sort of uh, nefarious purposes? I, I've thought about this a lot. AI, general intelligence. Everybody seems to have their own opinion. People have their own definition of what AI mm-hmm. even is, right? Yeah. Um, for me, I I like to think of it in terms of reasoning. When I reason, I usually do two forms of two forms of reasoning. I do deductive reasoning, right? Like if A implies B and A, then B. But alternatively, like if I ate yesterday and I'm hungry today and eating yesterday satisfied my need, I can use an abductive reasoning to infer I need to eat now. Mm-hmm. But I feel like sometimes, I feel like an AGI, a general intelligence, would have to have the ability to do both of these. Mm-hmm. And I'm ever so skeptical about this. I'm very skeptical about the ability of deductive reasoning to emerge from mm-hmm. abductive reasoning. And that seems to be almost like a requirement that's assumed by these neural network, uh, these people at NIPS. Um, yeah. I, I, I'm, I have a hard time believing that calculus could have been completely invented in a logical framework you know, from a neural network. And yeah. it, it wasn't really invented in a very, yeah. it was a collective effort. Yeah. But my question is, do you think deductive reasoning can emerge from abductive reasoning or vice versa? Or perhaps this question doesn't make any yeah. sense. I mean, maybe, but the thing I would say is, I think if we want to create, you know, better systems, we should find a way to integrate these automated reasoning systems with the neural systems because getting a neural network to figure out like even basic logical principles has been shown to be extremely expensive, right? So there has been some work, for example, in getting a neural network to solve the SAT problem. And, you know, you have to build a very special kind of network and it has to be, you know, big and it's slow and then it's not perfect, right? It's like just the wrong tool for the job. <laughs> like, you know, we know how to solve that problem. So I think what would be pretty interesting, right, is if we find ways to build some kind of general intelligence where we have a lot of different cooperating modules and maybe the neural network you know, hands the right problem off to the right modules. Like, oh, you, I mean, in some ways it's, it's not that different from like Google or Wolfram, right? Like you say, hey, I have this problem. It says, oh yeah, I have an algorithm for that. Let me run it and give you the answer. 
So I think something like that is a lot more promising than trying, I mean, trying to get a neural network to learn logic. I think that is a problem you could bang your head against for generations and it's going to be really <laughs> It's hard to speculate about a solution, right? But how can we combine these very seemingly disjoint systems for reason? Yeah. Yeah, it's a great question. And there's the new buzzword, neurosymbolic systems, that, uh, as far as I can tell, means very different things to different people. <laughs> but yeah, to me, it, it sort of captures this notion of how do you get these two things to play together. Now, one thing you can do if you want to reason about a system that has both neural networks and sort of traditional software or hardware, you know, we actually have tools now that could maybe do that because we can reason about neural networks by translating them into logic. And we can reason about other systems by also translating them into logic. And so now we have a way to reason about the whole thing. Uh, so I think we can reason about neurosymbolic systems, but I'm still not quite sure how we build them. Um, I mean, there, there, there is a sort of basic neurosymbolic system you can build, which is like, you know, maybe you have a neural network doing some perception and it identifies some objects and you feed that information to like a software program that says, oh, there are some objects. Now I'm going to decide what to do about that, right? Maybe, and then it, maybe it's a robot that's trying to navigate. And so these kinds of systems exist. And I would argue that they actually are combining, you know, neural networks with sort of logic-based reasoning. Um, in a kind of very natural way. But if you want to do something like have these like really big neural networks and somehow plug logic into them, I don't know how to do that. And yeah. I think that's a really interesting question. I, I was talking to somebody at Stanford recently who's, they're basically trying to build a neural network that can pass the bar, mm. right? And wow. so the bar has these like very specific questions about the law and, you know, you have to use your knowledge of the law and some reasoning to solve them. And he said the, the thing that everyone is stuck on that no one knows how to get past is, you know, they can feed in, you know, tons and tons of law books and train the network on it, but they can't teach it how to do the reasoning it needs to solve the problem. And I think that's, that's a tough problem. You're stepping back a little bit. Um... You mentioned this nice application of being able to get guarantees on drones. Now, it'd be nice if we had AGI, but we, we have a hard time just explaining what the AI is even thinking. You know, like what yeah. feature... Can automated reasoning like help make AI explainable? Yeah, I think, I think that's actually a great direction for some of these tools, right? So when we first built this tool to try to verify the, the network doing collision avoidance, you know, I explicitly, when we wrote the paper, I said, look, what's great about these tools is they are tools for reasoning about neural networks. And, you know, you can do lots of different things. You can try to say, you know, you could use them to try to simplify a network in some safe way. And you can use them to ask questions about a network, right? And I think this is a promising direction. So you could say, I think may, maybe you observe some pattern in the network's behavior and you say, I think what's happening is this. Well, let's ask the, for, the solver to prove that, to prove that that's what's really happening. And so you can use tools, automated reasoning tools to sort of be uh, an oracle that can tell you whether 
the solver or whether the network behaves in a certain way. And I think you could even do some kind of the analog of sort of invariant inference, right? So in a software program, often what you need is you need to know some property that's always true at a certain line of code. And those can be quite difficult to come up with. And so there have been a number of approaches uh, for basically proposing what might be true there and then checking it. And I think you could do the same thing with neural networks. You could come up with a set of algorithms where you say, it looks like the network's doing this. Now let me use my formal tool to try to prove that it is or isn't. I think I think that kind of thing could be promising. So we have this path for explainable AI. We have automated reasoning tools, which seem to be applying some assistance. But ideally, we want safe AI. Um, AIs that will always be obedient to us. <laughs> Institutions are getting involved in this. Governments are getting involved in this. And it seems like everybody's a bit afraid of this technology. It's 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 sort of Maybe there's others that I'm not thinking of at the moment, but it seems like the first technology we're all uniformly agreed that we're scared of. Um, Can automated reasoning techniques perhaps be the path for safe AI or like a constraint version of an AI that we would be comfortable living with? Yeah. So in one of my other roles, I'm the co-director of the Stanford Center for AI Safety, which is a center that we founded sort of on the heels of this pioneering work on verifying neural networks. And I don't, I don't think that automated reasoning is the only tool that we need. I think we need yeah. a whole toolbox, but I think it's a great tool to have in our toolbox. And I think that just like with writing good software, there's a good time and a place to apply formal methods and it can be extremely effective when used under those conditions. And you know, people who are researching formal methods are trying to make that particular tool in the toolbox better all the time. And as it gets better, it becomes more useful. And, you know, what used to be like a small screwdriver is now a Swiss army knife. And, you know, maybe someday it will be like a, something even more fancy, right? So, so I think it, it's a great area to be working in because I sort of like to look at the the glass is half full, not half empty, right? Like you can say, wow, there's all these networks that we can't do any formal reasoning about and we'll never get there. And I like to say, well, look at all the networks we can formally reason about and every day there's more, right? Because the tools are getting better. And like you said, there there are lots of applications where you don't want a giant network. Maybe you're on the edge or you're, you know, got an embedded device or... <clears throat> or it just doesn't require that that kind of power, right? Like a five-layer network is perfectly sufficient for, you know, certain kinds of things. And so, you know, we've got a great tool and the tools are getting better. And that's just going to increase our ability to uh, build safe systems. Now, I think safe AI is a big issue and... I think we're going to need a lot of different techniques to get there. And I, I think it's still very young. And, and It's hard to even define, right? Yeah, it's hard to even define. Like one, one, thing, one thing that has been an interesting result of this work is, um, you know, people say, people can poke holes in the work and say, well, it doesn't scale. And, you know, it's really hard to come up with what properties to prove. So how good is this? And I was like, well... I can flip that back on you and say the one property we have come up with that's easy to check is robustness. And guess what? None of your ro- none of your networks have it. <laughs> so <laughs> if you can give me an, a robust network, then you can start criticizing my technology. 
And I think it's just been a bit of an eye opener that, you know, yes, these AI systems can do amazing stuff, but they're incredibly fragile, right? I mean, the you can perturb something just ever so slightly and the human notices no difference. And now the AI system is completely confused. And that I think is a problem that's going to take a while to solve. And I, I think until we get that problem solved, uh, we're not, I'm going to be pretty skeptical about safe AI. But I, I do think there are probably some solutions. One, one thing that I advocate for when I talk about AI safety is it's not a good idea to have end-to-end AI systems, like input is camera and output is steering and brakes, because there's just too many ways for that to go wrong, right? Mm-hmm. So what you really want to have is maybe you want to have three different systems that are interpreting the environment, and then you have them come together and agree on what the environment is, and then you have like some well-defined control systems and some logic that that are going to tell you what to do, right? So you have a heterogeneous system where AI is like doing the one thing that it does well, which is maybe perception. I think that has much more, a much greater chance to be a safe system than this sort of end-to-end system. So I think AI is going to play an increasingly important role, but I, I think it's also going to be important to sort of identify where it shines and not have it try to do too much, like not have it do logical reasoning. <laughs> it's not good at it. So this will probably be my last question. Um, automated reasoning is, you know, it's perhaps a bit s- slower than the neural networks right now when it comes to solving these black box problems. But there's still a lot of progress. There's, an, I, I saw in one of your talks that there's an exponential amount of progress in the recent years. And if, you know, ex- exponents grow really fast, right? <laughs> so it could be the case that in a few years, these if they keep this projection, they will be able to do just things we can't even conceive right now. Yeah. But these also might be enabled by other things. They could be enabled by better hardware, maybe even other models of computation like quantum or something. What, what do you think is the biggest hurdle right now for automated reasoning? What would it take to the next level, the next step, the next yeah. really big, powerful application? Um, I mean, the the biggest problem has always been scalability, yeah. right? So you give it a hard is- enough problem and it just can't solve it. It's too, it's too hard. And the scalability um, comes from the complexity, this, this really hard complexity, yes, right? Yes. So, I mean, basically under the hood, you're, um, you're always dealing with an NP complete problem and it may be worse, right? And, you know, because we think that P is not equal to NP or we have no reason to think it is, the best algorithms for these kinds of problems are always worst case exponential, right? The ones that we have. So if you fall off that exponential cliff, right? Yeah. Then you time out and you can't solve it. This has always been the big challenge. Do you have thoughts on that question, by the way? Like, uh, do you, you think P is not equal to NP? I think it's not just because we can't find any way to solve SAT faster than two to the N. <laughs> and a lot of really smart people have tried. But yeah, I think the proof is probably, it's one of these things that maybe we don't have the mathematics developed yet to figure out how to prove that. Do you, do you but, think anything can be enabled by the hardware? You know, there was that har- that SAT revolution in the 2000s and yeah. it, was, it was largely enabled by hardware. And, you know, in the early 2010s, there was a neural network revolution. Yeah. But what, what enabled that? It was probably the very fast GPUs, right? Maybe there's a new piece of hardware that might explode this technology. Do you, 
I think you could certainly speed things up if you implement them in hardware. Um, I'm not sure that's the best place to put our effort yet, though. That's a huge, huge undertaking because we still are getting huge benefits by just improving the algorithms. And like I said, this sort of thing that we do where we find a hard problem and then we go study the domain and we tweak the solver and now suddenly it's trivial. Like that happens over and over again. So I think there's still lots of work to do in that area. But if you look at sort of, if you take a step back and say, well, are there any, any like general things we can do to speed up solvers or make them scale better? And I think there are two. So one is parallel, right? So it used to be that writing parallel software meant you have to write it in a different language or you have to rewrite your tools and all this stuff. But these days, you know, we just fire up a million machines in the cloud and then we just do something really dumb to partition the problem and, yeah. and that'll do it. And I think that's going to, I think that approach is going to work for mm. automated reasoning. Now, it's not simple because... There's, a, there's another similar complexity barrier, right? I think it's like yeah, yeah. Nick's there's class this P-sharp and complaint. Thing. Yeah, P. Yeah, so SAT is a P-sharp problem, which... Now, I'm not an expert, but the way I understand it, it just means it's hard to parallelize because mm-hmm. if you divide it up, chances are that, you know, one of the problems you divide it into is as hard as the original and the others are all trivial, right? It's just really hard to divide it up in an even way. <laughs> um, but, you know, what this Cuban Conquer work showed that solved this really hard open math problem is you can be super wasteful, right? Maybe maybe 90% of the problems you divide it up into are trivial, hmm. but you still gain something But with that 10%. And if you use a million machines, 10% of a million machines is a lot. Yeah. And if you actually are getting reasonable speed up on those 10%, then you've got something, right? So I think there's going to be a path towards parallel automated reasoning, but uh, it's hard. It's not, it's not simple. You have to find the right way to partition the problem and the obvious things you try don't work. <laughs> uh, this is a problem that we're working on. I have a student working on it. And uh, I, think, I think we're going to, you know, we're going to crack it eventually. So I think that's one area of hope. And then the other thing that I think is cool is I think actually machine learning can help here, but, but not by using machine learning to solve the SAT problem, but using machine learning to analyze the solver itself. So if you think of my, you know, steampunk machine with a million dials, what AI is really good at is, hey, let's look at the patterns of the dials when they solve the problems. And let's give it millions and millions of problems and see which dials work best where. And I mean, so at the basic level, this is just auto-tuning, right? And you can auto-tune an SMT solver and that actually works pretty well. But if you give it access to the dials inside the solver, you know, all the different modules and how they work and, and figure out ways to tune those, I think that could be pretty interesting. So those are a couple areas that I think might, might help us break some of those barriers. Thank you, Professor. This was, this was great.